welcome to the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Kevin McKernan. Kevin is a renowned leader in DNA sequencing technology and a prolific researcher. He is also the founder and chief science officer of Medicinal Genomics, which is a life sciences company that distributes genetics-based platforms for quality and safety testing, mainly in the legal cannabis industry. So Kevin basically knows everything about the, the world of biotechnology and genomics, broadly speaking. We talked a lot about the cannabis genome, so his team has sequenced many different cannabis genomes. We talked about the architecture of the cannabis genome, its size and complexity, how it relates to things like the chemical content that plants will tend to have in terms of what cannabinoids and terpenes they will express. We talked about technology, including things like PCR, the polymerase chain reaction, and how it's used to detect and amplify DNA. We talked about how it's used for things like COVID testing. So if if you've ever gotten uh, a nasal swab for COVID, test positive or negative, that's determined usually by a PCR test. And Kevin walked us through how that works and how to do it right and how it can be also done improperly. We talked about more recent work that him and his team have done to sequence the genome of Psilocybe cubensis, which is one of the more common species of psilocybin-containing magic mushrooms, and how that genome looks and how that relates to its psilocybin content, as well as the content of some other potential psychoactive compounds found in magic mushrooms. Kevin also walked through blockchain technology, how it works at a very basic level, as well as how medicinal genomics utilizes blockchain technology to handle some of their genomics data. So if you're interested in biotech as it relates to genomics, if you're interested in genome sequencing, genetic testing, PCR, things like that, um, this will be a really interesting episode. We also talked about um, some cannabinoids. In particular, we talked about some of the recent research that's been done by other labs looking at the potential antiviral effects of cannabinoids like CBD, cannabidiol. There's a recent paper showing that CBD might actually have anti-SARS-CoV-2 effects, and Kevin gave his perspective on those results and what he thinks they might mean. So if you're interested in cannabis, magic mushrooms, genomics, uh, PCR, COVID testing, and all that stuff, this is a really interesting episode. There is a fairly brief visual component. Kevin walked us through some data on the Medicinal Genomics website, but we talked about it in a way that I think audio listeners will be able to understand. So if you're interested in any of that stuff, uh, this will be a really interesting one. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Kevin McKernan. Kevin McKernan, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate. Uh, we so we, we've obviously got to know each other on Twitter, and, and we're met with Catherine Jacobson. But it was uh, it was uh, great to have you reach out and and decide to chat about this stuff. Yeah. So can you start off by just giving everyone a sense of who, who you are and what your background in science is? Yeah. So my background uh, began on the Human Genome Project uh, in Cambridge uh, back in when was that ninety five ninety six. Um, so I was the uh, Started there as just uh, someone in the research and development team there, and eventually um, 
a lot of those folks left and I ended up inheriting, uh, running a team that I was wholly unqualified to do uh, at that time. I was fresh out of college, uh, but uh, attrition kind of uh, buoyed me up and I ended up managing what ended up being a 10 or 12 person uh, research and development team making robotics for the Human Genome Project and, and building out their DNA purification tools that uh, they could use for sequencing uh, DNA with, uh, this was under uh, Eric Lander's um, lab down at the Whitehead Institute. Um, I wrapped up that around in 2000 when the Human Genome Project finished. Uh, we decided to spin some of those purification technologies out into a company called Agincourt Biosciences, uh, which is up here in Beverly, Mass. Um, that ended up selling a lot of these DNA purification kits you may be familiar with in the field known as SPRY. Uh, I think they're under Beckman Coulter's now label of, um, uh, what do they have, RNA? I think they have, a, they have a couple different names for them now. but. Um, Spry is a core technology there that is uh, a magnetic bead-based tool that can capture DNA from from viruses and from uh, from plasmids and uh, various genomes. It's fairly universally used in the next generation sequencing space. But uh, while we were developing that, um, uh, Beckman Coulter came to acquire the company and didn't know what to do with one of our projects. We had a project there that was trying to get sequencing off of an individual single micron bead. Um, at the time, we were using millions of these beads to harvest DNA and RNA from organisms, but we weren't really sequencing off of individual beads. We were using them sort of in ensemble to capture large amounts of DNA out of organisms. But we did figure out a way to sequence DNA right off of those individual beads, and that turned into the solid sequencer which Applied Biosystems came to acquire that branch of the company a year later. And then I went with Applied Biosystems for five years to bring the solid sequencer to market. I worked on the Iron Torn platform as well. Um, we decided to acquire that about five years into it or four years into it and um, managed a research and development team there, mostly focused on emulsion PCR uh, to feed the, um, the sequencers. Both the solid and the Iron Torn relied on these types of single molecule PCR tools um, for sequencing. Um, and then after that, uh, I decided to get, uh, I had a non-compete with, the company was now Lifetech. They merged and they became this huge company. Now they're part of Thermo, even bigger. Um, and I had a non-compete with them and I really couldn't do much in the life sciences space. So I decided to go off in an area they weren't in, which was in cannabis genomics. Uh, so I, I left and started medicinal genomics in 2011. And we just dipped our toe in the water by sequencing ChemDog and LA Confidential from um, DNA Genetics and put um, put those things public. Uh, and that's how I got to know John Page and a lot of the other folks who they'd actually been working on their problem longer than I had. Um, and uh, they published a really nice paper that had some RNA sequencing as well as uh, sequencing from Purple Kush and Finola. Um, and that kind of started medicinal genomics and we got focused on, you know, where can we deploy genomics in the cannabis space and make a difference? And so we began focusing on doing DNA sequencing for people, um, building uh, PCR tests that could look for certain genetics in the, in the plant, uh, and then also looking at microbes and viruses in the plant that may infect, uh, affect their yield. Um, there was a little uh, stint in between there uh, where medicinal genomics was housed inside of the clinical diagnostic company, which, which is where I learned about all the, the clinical requirements for, for doing PCR in a clinical setting, um, many of which actually are sadly being ignored right now in the COVID pandemic due to, due to urgency, but um, they're slowly getting reinstated. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of uh, sums up where, uh, where I started and how I ended up here. Interesting. So, so you have a background in genomics and the related biotechnology so you ended up starting a company which basically does genomics stuff as a service for the cannabis industry, the legal cannabis industry. And you mentioned you mentioned some interesting names there that many, many people maybe won't recognize, ChemDog and some others. Those were cannabis strains. So what, what can you tell us about 
the cannabis genome at a very high level and what it looks like and, and how different it actually can be between these different types of cannabis. Yeah, so that's something we didn't fully appreciate in, in 2011 is how repetitive it was. Um, the genomes wouldn't assemble very well back then. We only had Illumina technology, which is really short read tools back then. I mean, PacBio was just getting going. But so these are 100, these can read about 150 bases on two ends of a molecule. So maybe 300 bases in total. Uh, the genome, the first draft of the genome we put together only assembled into like 400 megabases. And we now know it's twice that size. Um, and a lot of that is because about you know over 70% of the genome is highly repetitive and these short reads can't sort them out. Um, so when you go into assembly, they pile all of these repeat reads on top of each other when they're in fact, they represent different regions of the genome. Uh, the other thing, uh, we've seen over time is I think back then we were assuming the polymorphism rate that we could we, that we could detect in the genome was maybe a variant every hundred bases. Um, and that was largely an artifact because we didn't have the, the genome as, as nicely mapped out as we do now. Now we know it's closer. If you compare hemp lines to um, let's say type one lines, you can see almost a variant every 50 to 70 bases. So it's far more polymorphic than we originally estimated. It's a bigger genome than we originally estimated. We also have now genomes of males that were done on PacBio, and those show that the, the polymorphism rate on the Y chromosome is like three times higher than it is genome wide. So, uh, so that's a real landmine on, on the, on the, on the Y. So, so to summarize so far, the cannabis genome is larger and more complicated than maybe people appreciated initially. You said it was 800 megabases. So that means 800 million letters of DNA. Yes. And yeah. How yeah. does that it compare? Probably, probably 850, actually. And if you bring in the males, it's bigger. The male has the Y chromosome, which is uh, like 110 megabases. So it's, it's the biggest chromosome in the genome. It shares about 30 megabases with the X chromosome on, on so females are XX and males are XY. So there's um, the, the, the male genomes are a little bit bigger, uh, but uh, I'm sorry, you, you had another question. I cut you off. So, so how does the size of that relate to say the human genome, just to give people a, a relative sense? Oh, that's a good call. So the human genome is uh, like 2.9 gig as a haploid state. So double that when it's diploid, uh, but we, we tend to condense diploid, uh, genomes that, of organisms that don't have a lot of differences between them, if they're fairly inbred and came through a bottleneck like the human population, they tend to distill them down to the haploid size. So you'll typically hear a number thrown around about three gig for the human genome. Uh, reality is you actually have six gig in every cell. Uh, it's just that your mother and father genomes aren't so different that people call it three. And cannabis, I don't think it's, fa it's fair to do because the, the, the mothers and fathers can be so distantly related and have so many copy number changes between them that we, we probably have to go back to using diploid genomes. Um, this is something that we've kind of struggled with with a lot of the cannabis references that have been built is that we have this tendency, the assemblers do this, not, it's not any intent out of, the, out of the researchers, but the DNA assembly algorithms tend to condense things into a single reference genome as opposed to recognizing that the organism is diploid and you should really try to peel apart the maternal and the paternal genomes into separate um, genomes. Uh, but we have tools now that we didn't have back then that can do this. There are these long read sequencers from PacBio that are very accurate. Um, they have a hi-fi chemistry now that has better than Sanger sequencing quality, uh, and it does 20,000 base pair reads like this. So we can now put together these plant genomes and split the haplotypes, if you will, into different buckets. And um, that's uh, that's ongoing work. That's still happening. I think you'll see the references we have up in NCBI and that the other group who did CBDRX and MCBI, they've all been distilled into a haploid representation of 10 chromosomes. 
uh, where we're hoping to go is to convince NCBI or others to maybe split those into 20 chromosomes because uh, it's, it's very difficult for us to um, make the assumptions of which one of the maternal or paternal chromosomes should be represented in the, uh, in the genome. So like the, probably the most used one in there is a female genome that's uh, a CBD genome, CBDRX, because it was one of the earliest ones put in. Um, we put in a lot of these Illumina ones, but they weren't reference grade. You know, they didn't have chromosome assignments. Uh, we've, we've gone through the Jamaican lion genomes and done a trio where we sequenced a mother, a father, and the offspring, six of the offspring. Uh, and that's given us a lot more confidence in what are the maternal and paternal haplogroups because we can kind of follow the, the, the inheritance of these things into the offspring. Um, and we've just now organized that into chromosomes with, um, we've had it organized into chromosomes for a while, but we're just, we have to re-annotate it to get it into NCBI when that process right now. But uh, what you'll see up there is currently a Jamaican lion assembly, which has very good contiguity, um, which is, really packed bios trophy, not ours. Uh, they, we just used their technology and it ended up putting it into over uh, almost five megabase and 50. So the average contig size in the genome is about 5 million bases long. Um, that's a good like five-fold more contiguous than what's in there currently with CBDRX, but we don't have it named as chromosomes, which we, we have here internally. We're just trying to get it public. Uh, but uh, that is a, it's a very complimentary tool because um, these genomes we're finding are so different that this concept of having a single reference genome that we can get away with in human genetics doesn't really apply in plants. Uh, we have to really consider multiple reference genomes when we're looking at these plants because they're 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 almost they're different enough that it, that it matters. Yeah. So so I guess the the punchline here is that the cannabis genome, if you were to take two random cannabis plants and sequence their genomes, they're going to tend to be more different from each other than if you were to take two random human beings. And you briefly Far mentioned. More. The, yeah, yes. if, you, if you you mentioned briefly that you know the reason for this is um, for those that don't know, the human genomes from person to person are relatively homogenous, meaning that you know even if two people look quite different, their genomes are still very very similar, and that's because there was this huge population bottleneck at one point in in our lineage, and we're effectively all several billion of us on the planet are descended from something like effectively 10,000 people. Is that accurate? Yeah, right. And there's only, so there's only a variant like one every thousand letters. Mm. In cannabis, it's like it could be one every 50 letters. Um, I see. So the yeah, cannabis genome is... Worse. Yeah, they're, 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 this is, 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 is kind of... I think the mosquito lineage is you can find like a, a, a variant every 20 or 25 bases. Oh, wow. So so a lot of these organisms are just more genetically diverse than human beings are. And so that makes life more interesting, but more difficult for, for someone like you in different ways. You mentioned that there's a lot of re repetition in the cannabis genome. Where does, where does that come from? What does that mean? So that's mostly from these... Uh, retro transposon elements. Um, so some of these genomes have these viral elements that just um, replicate themselves and copy themselves all over the place. And this is certainly happening in the cannabis genome. There are a lot of these LTRs that are long terminal repeats and copia transposons. These are things that basically code for a gene that can excise the DNA, uh, I should say make RNA uh, out of a certain segment. And that RNA codes for a polymerase and an enzyme that will copy it back into DNA and put it back in your genome. Uh, it's almost like a uh, like an HIV part of the genome, if you will. It's got a piece of um, it's like it got a gag and a pole region, which are re things that can polymerize its own stretch of of, uh, of RNA into DNA and then reinsert it back into the genome. So it's like a retro transposable element that then kind of copies itself all over the place, and it tends to do this in certain regions of the genome more than others. Um, now, the, the cannabinoid synthase genes happen to be buried in a forest of these things, these, mm -hmm. these LTRs. 
Uh, and that's been one reason why it's been so difficult to like resolve the BTBD allele over time. This is an allele that Etienne de Meyer described that's, that governs cannabinoid synthesis in the plant. Uh, it's buried in this huge LTR forest, uh, believed to be more centromeric than, than telomeric. A lot of the genes in the cannabis genome are out on the ends of the chromosomes, uh, but the cannabinoids are odd in that they seem to be more centromeric and buried in some of these repeats. But that may also be what's accounting for some of their, um, their inheritance patterns. These things may have replicated the cannabinoid synthesis pathway um, into more than one gene. Uh, so we now know that there's THC synthase, which is a different gene than THC synthase. We also know there's about five to eight copies of cannabichromine synthase in a lot of these cannabis plants. And then there's this, this, this lineage of all these other cannabinoid synthase genes that where we don't really know if they're active yet. Um, there might be some RNA transcription off of them, but we don't know if that RNA gets fully processed and put into, uh, into proteins that make enzymes. And are those what are responsible for making the wide diversity of other cannabinoids uh, in, in the plant? We don't yet know that yet. All those genes need to be cloned and expressed and fed precursors to see if they make these other rare cannabinoids, like maybe cannab cannabimovan is one that came up recently. And I think TCA HP was found in Carmagnolia in Italy. Like, what is what are making those things? We hmm. we don't so know if those are different um, synthase genes or if those are like differences in upstream genes that might be messing with the propyl side chains versus the heptyl side chains. Um, the, the the input to the synthesis pathway could be altered as well. Um, Interesting. So yeah, so, those, I, I think they're playing a role in the cannabinoid diversity that the plant's seen. And I do think there's been bottlenecks, legal bottlenecks that have been occurred. So we've had prohibition that's pushed everything below 0.3% THC. So hemp lines have now been bred to just eliminate certain cannabinoid synthase genes. And then of course, prohibition had this inverse underground effect where people bred for very high THC content because they were persecuted based on weight. So now we have you know skunk-like genetics that are really effective at folding THC um, from precursor. Uh, so I, it's, it's interesting in that I think that's, that's created some um, convergent evolution in the field. We just put out a little preprint describing some of this, that you can find two different ways in the genome to, to blow apart THC synthase. Uh, typically, it's a copy number variation where the entire gene is just missing. That's probably 95% of the genetics we see in the CBD lines is they, they don't have THC synthase. The entire gene's gone. Uh, there's some rare um, type 4 genetics out there which make CBG, which is the precursor to CBD and THC. They can't have a CBD gene or a THC gene, or those genes need to be broken so they don't flip CBG into any THC or CBD. Uh, we found um, some plants that just have both THC and CBD deleted, and there's also plants that still have a THC synthase gene, but there's two point mutations in the gene that are homozygous and, and, and change. One of them changes um, uh, I think it's residue 355 to uh, an N, which uh, in asparagine, which can be glycosylated. And there's all this literature from Zerpel on when you glycosylate certain residues in this THC synthase, you alter its activity. So um, we think that's what might be going on in all those type four genetics. But what's really interesting is that the plant has evolved multiple ways to knock out THC synthase. Uh, and uh, that, that was kind of a surprise to us. We hadn't recognized that until we got about 1500 genomes deep into this. I see. So, so I guess the, the rough way of describing this is there are multiple genes that encode proteins involved in the production of cannabinoids, THC, CBD, a variety of other ones that we can get into in a little bit. A lot of these genes are buried in these um, forests of repetitive DNA that come from these interesting uh, genomic entities that you described. And 
they are tending to be uh, near one side of the chromosome and not the other. And so over time, as people bred different types of cannabis for different reasons, you're saying that on the one hand, uh, the, the black market where a lot of the high THC cannabis was bred in the U.S. and elsewhere, um, basically the, the plants were bred and selected such that only the THC producing genes were, were uh, retained and some of the other genes were either inactivated or, or changed somehow so that you're not producing some of those other minor cannabinoids. Whereas with the hemp lineages that produce a lot of CBD, there were a couple different pathways by which the breeders were able to create plants that didn't have some of the genes relevant for producing THC. Right, exactly. So there, there's, they were breeding for, you know, their, their final end result was just probably measuring uh, with a bioassay, either consuming it themselves or if they're, you know, in later years, it may have been more HPLC driven, but they can just look for THC compound out, out of a, as a percent of weight of the flower. Um, but there was more than one way to skin that cat. You could, you could be selecting plants that had complete deletions of the THC gene or ones that had point mutations um, that would inactivate it. So um, that, that's, uh, it, I guess it goes to show that there's you know, multiple different ways to get to a desired end. And I think that's a theme that we consistently see in cannabis, perhaps more so than in, in, in human biology, because it's so variable, mm. uh, that when you go and perform a selection, you can probably find multiple different variants that achieve the same end. Um, and I think that's, I think we have now evidence for that on, um, at least for the, the type four plants. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you say type one, two, three, four, these are referring to plants that have different genetics, such that they produce different cannabinoid profiles. So a, a type one plant would be a THC dominant plant that is producing mainly THC and not some of the other cannabinoids. Those plants are the most, um, prominent, the ones that you're most likely to encounter in, in a dispensary, say. Yeah. Yeah. So. Indeed. One of the things a lot of people notice when they go into a dispensary is there's so many different types of type one or THC dominant strains yeah. out there allegedly. And so, you know, you mentioned some earlier, ChemDog and some others. So if you walk into a dispensary and you're seeing Blue Dream and ChemDog and OG Kush and this and that, how how real are those? Do do most of those things map to genetically distinct cultivars? So that's a good question. Um we so we that's a good if you go into Canopedia and just pull up Blue Dream, which I might be able to do live here, um, you'll see a lot of them are in fact um, clonally. They're clonally um, replicated, uh, which isn't always the case. Um, uh, let me see if I can pull up Blue Dream on here. And see what we get. Uh, oh, I have to space the name. So, oh, I should probably. Um, Pop this up on uh, something you guys can view as well. I can probably share a screen if you yep, want. You can use the screen share. Um, okay, so let me hit screen share. This is just a view of, of uh, Blue Dream happens to be one that we sequenced a bunch because the people are asking that question. How do we know? So there, there are some multi-state operators that want a Blue Dream in every state, but you can't cross state lines, so they got to grow it differently in every state. And there was concern over uh, over those genetics, whether they were all the same, um, and. Uh, Let me share the screen. It might be on your end. I may need a approval to do so. There you go. Yeah, it's saying it's disabled on your front. See if you can do do it now. All right. There we go. Let's go here and share. All right. So um, this is a, a website called Canopedia that holds a lot of the genetics that are public for sequencing. Um, so if you just go into the search bar up here and search for Blue Dream, it'll give you a list of 37 strains that are in the database that have Blue Dream in the name. 
Um, and so you'll find some that are, uh, you're probably, you probably won't find Snoop Stream in here, but there's a Snoop Stream that looks a lot like this Blue Dream. So the, here's one from Happy Valley, which is sold here in a dispensary in Massachusetts. Um, so the, these charts here, uh, we look at the X and Y ratio of the DNA to figure out if it's male or female. Usually people are sending females in, um, so that's mm -hmm. not a surprise. Um, we look at the heterozygosity, which is gives you a sense of how inbred it might be. That's helpful for people making seeds. They want to breed things so, such that the heterozygosity hopefully is, is low so the seeds don't come out very different. But this is kind of a predictor of how, how different your siblings will be if you, if you, were, to, if you were to breed it. Uh, we look at the sequence coverage over four different cannabinoid synthesis regions because we find uh, this is very predictive of the type of plant it's going to be. In this case, um, this this one has both the THC synthase gene, but this over here, the really the, the the depth of coverage here, how it's kind of square wave over here, this is really a sign that there's not a lot of depth of coverage over CBD synthase and it's gone. Uh, as opposed to these other ones have like 50x or 100x coverage over these other genes. And this one has a CBC cassette. This is a this is a two base, a two megabase deletion that often occurs in cannabis plants that we just track because we're we're suspect that cannabichromine genes may produce small amounts of THC and 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 play a role in whether you get a 0.3 or 0.4 percent THC plant. That's still a bit of a theory. It's not been proven although. Giuseppe Mendelito's done some nice RNA sequencing work on these genes to show that when this is around, there's a little bit more residual THC. Um, so this just tells you there's a variant in this gene that's, uh, this has been described, this, this particular variant, we should probably get a link in here that, to the paper, but this has been described before by Onofre. Um, so this is a known variant in THC synthase that shows up. Don't really know if it does anything to it yet. Uh, these are a bunch of other variants in that pathway, but to your point of how similar are they, um, this is a tool we use to look at the genetic distance between other things in Canopedia. So you can see all of these blue dreams line up and they even are almost clonal to Snoopstream, which someone probably just renamed Snoopstream to blue dream yeah. to make it sell a little better. Yeah, we definitely see that. I mean, in the profiles, the Snoopstream and the blue dream profiles are remarkably consistent across almost oh, every producer. Yeah, yeah, so this would be fantastic data to intersect with what you've done. Um, yeah. Because it's, the database is a little weak on chemotypes. Um, there's a, you can search by chemotype, but there's just not a lot of chemotype information that gets piled in here. Um, but we can do it. If people send us their, their SC lab report or whatever lab they're using, we can, we can scrape that information and insert it with their, um, their strains. Um, this particular color code here, these numbers are more important than the color code. We, we kind of, someone in our group just set this at 10% and that's not necessarily a hard distinction between clones. I think this is going to get refined back down to more like 5% over time as we've sequenced more and more clones and more and more siblings. Um, but uh, you can see some other things that might be, you know, related. And at the same time, we try to search through the database for things that are most distant. And you'll see things like cherry blossom, which are CBD lines pop up as being, mm. you know, very distant to blue dream. Um, okay. So, but the point is you, you're basically, you're sequencing the DNA of different plants and it's quite simple for you to tell um, whether or not samples are closely related genetically. So someone has Blue Dream, someone else has Snoop Stream, someone has this other strain called Serious Happiness, and they're very, very, very similar genetically, and you can see that. We can see that, and we what we have tried to do so that the data could be more um, correlative to some of the work that you're doing uh, is we try to cover the genes in the cannabinoid synthesis pathway and the terpene synthesis pathway when we do this. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have, you know, great variant to terpene predictions. I mean, Philippe Henry's done some work on this, which has been really, really good. And there's, he's got a couple snips that kind of predict the broad class of terpenes that you may make, like you might be limiting dominant or terpenaline dominant, but we can't tell you the, the, 
oh, you're going to be 3% beta-carotene and 1% mm-hmm. humulene type of thing yet. Um, but I think over time, as more people correlate these variants with kind of the, the outcome, we'll get close. I don't think we're ever going to nail it perfectly because we're, we're just predicting the hand that you're dealt, not, the, not how you play it, mm. uh, right? Like the, 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 the conditions upon which you grow these is going to obviously alter the terpene expression and how you cure it. And, and a lot of those things are going to, are going to alter the, perhaps the magnitude. But there are some genetic switches that really determine how much you can actually make. Like a plant that doesn't have a THC synthase gene. Let me see if I can actually go to one. Like cherry blossom probably doesn't have one. It's not going to make a lot of CBD. Uh, mm-hmm. We can predict that pretty readily. Like here's, a, here's an example where the CBD gene is present. THC is gone. There's a neighboring gene next to THC that looks a lot like CBD synthase. It's often deleted. We just we happen to watch them both. Um, but they're usually they're both co-deleted usually. And it has cannabichromine. So this might make C- CBD alone when it's cloned into yeast. Zerpel's shown that it'll make a 20 to 1 ratio of C- to CBD to THC. So, so it's not that um, this gene itself is a little dirty. It, it makes a little a side product. We suspect the same thing's going on with cannabichromine synthase, that it's a little dirty as well and sometimes makes a small amount of THC in the process of making cannabichromine. Not as well proven as it is with what they've done with CBD synthase. They've actually cloned this and shown that that, that happens. But nevertheless, we can predict that if you don't have a THC synthase gene here, you're not going to be making a 5 or a 10 percenter. Um, you, mm-hmm. you, this is really about dissecting whether you're at a 0.3 or 0.5%, which the genetics is getting close, but not perfect on doing yet. Uh, so I don't think we can, maybe if the, if the settings were put to 1%, we could probably predict genetically where you're going to fall. But I think splitting hairs between 0.3 and 0.4 is still very difficult to do mm-hmm. with the DNA alone. So, so if we back up for a second, go to the top. So, um, uh, go down to like the heterozygosity chart. This oh, there part. you go. Yeah. Yep. So, so if you're a cannabis cultivator, you're making uh, cannabis plants, you're breeding them. Your goal is to produce a nice, consistent uh, set of strains that will actually be sold in dispensaries. There's a number of things you might want to do in terms of genetic testing, and that's where you guys come in. One is you want to know if some seed that you have is male or female. So they can send you a sample and you guys can tell if it's male or female by looking at the uh, ratio of X chromosomes to Y chromosomes present in that. Yes. Yeah. We, we've actually um, turned this into a PCR test. Um, now, we tend to sell that to a lot of labs who do it locally because sending some of the seeds around can be complicated. Well, you know, the farm bills help that out on a, on a uh, hemp side, but... <clears throat> Uh, we just kind of made the decision we're not going to open up a service lab here and compete with a lot of the other labs that are our customers. We just sell the picks and shovels to them. But what we do do is we run some validation studies that help guide them on how to utilize the tools. So, for instance, with the seeds, people don't want to test a single seed at a time. They want to mm-hmm. test 100 seeds in a batch of 1,000 or 10,000 to know if the batch they're about to buy has any male contamination in it. Mm-hmm. So we set up a study that looked at um, taking 50 female seeds and 50 male uh, f- female and male seeds. We did this with... Um, uh, Colorado seeds actually some uh, Jesse helped us out over there and, and they basically got us ratios of of seeds that were mixed at different ratios so we had where it's 50 50 male female seeds where it's 75 25 and all the way down to 100 seeds 100 to 1 we can pick up a single male uh, seed in 100 seeds with a qPCR test that just shows the that the y chromosome is present at a, at a at a certain CT value that tells us there's some male DNA sitting around and for, and for those not familiar with uh, the cannabis industry why would a cultivator want to ensure that there is no male contamination 
So, well, there's a couple interesting developments there. Um, so traditionally, they don't want male seeds around because if a male pops outdoor in a large grow, uh, it can then pollinate all of the females. They seed out, which makes lower quality flower, lower cannabinoid content flower, uh, and just creates a wreck. Uh, now, Oregon CBD has done some great work making triploids, which don't make seeds. So that kind of changes the game quite a bit. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they're mostly focused on CBD um, and CBG plants, but, uh, you know, that technology can easily port uh, to THC or type one plants. I think Darkheart just announced that they've done something on that front. Um, but uh, that's a path of making uh, of sterilized plants, which can be very helpful for planting a very large grow that you don't ever want to get pollinated, particularly in a place like Oregon, where there's a lot of back you know, backyard grows that could pollinate your CBD farm with THC. And then suddenly the next generation of your farm may have some seeds that sprinkled onto the ground that pop hot. And if you get inspected and you have a plant that's above 0.3% THC, they can come and burn down your whole, your whole garden. So mm. um, it's really important out there in these outdoor grows because pollen, cannabis pollen can travel miles. Uh, so someone could be growing in Willamette Valley, you know, a, uh, 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 down, you know, down, down the valley a mile away and blow pollen onto your CBD garden or farm and really wreck you for the following season if they don't, uh, if they don't clear that farm of any seed that may have had THC pollen blown into it. Um, so they, likewise, when people are buying these seeds to plant, they want to make sure they don't have any males coming through because if one male sits out in a, in a, in a farm of a thousand females and pollinates them all, you, you can wreck, you know, an enormous crop by having those males float around. So they want to buy certified seeds that don't have any males coming through. They're fully feminized. And the feminization process is never hundred percent. I mean, I think the numbers I saw from Oregon CBD is that they have like one male every 4,400 plants, which is really remarkable but there's still one that can be a male in, in that whole feminization process. And that, that's the, that's what they have to kind of keep their eye out for in, in, uh, in, in as they're, as they're planting these things. Um, others that are selling these, these, um, seeds, uh, a buyer wants to know like, what's that ratio? It like test a hundred seeds a couple times and tell me if there's any Y in there. And if there's, you know, if three lots come through of a hundred seeds that, that are clean, then we suspect the whole batch is probably clean and, and folks can, can move on. So um, the, I think really doing that ensemble seed test is going to be really, really important for those that are trying to sell these, um, these lots of seeds. So the other thing I, <clears throat> that I want to ask you here is, you're showing us some of this data to do with these cannabinoid synthase genes. Sometimes they're present, sometimes they're absent. You've described for us how, you know, in certain um, lineages of cannabis, there could be deletions where a gene is missing. You might have mutations that inactivate a cannabinoid synthase gene and things like this. So thinking about the ancestral sort of wild type cannabis that was out there, did, did cannabis used to have all of the the cannabinoid synthases and produce some amount of most of these cannabinoids or how do you think about the ancestral state of the cannabis genome? So my grant, I've not been in the field that long. So I'm, I'm speaking from what I've read and what I've heard. I suspect the prohibition created um, a cannabinoid synthase bottleneck where people were breeding in two opposite directions. They're breeding toward hemp lines that had no THC. And then they're breeding toward plants that had very high levels of THC because those were, if you get caught with a pound, you want that pound to be 20%, not 10%, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's just like whiskey during prohibition, right? This, there's a, a tendency to concentrate the product when it gets prosecuted based on weight. So I think that that may have selected for plants that have a particular cannabinoid synthase um, ratio, if you will, or, or, or types of genes that, that promote those types of cannabinoids that we're measuring. Because we're not 
constantly measuring for THCP, we've probably bred it out of the population to very low levels. In fact, it's no surprise that they found that in the Italian Carmagnolia line. This is a, a line that's really a, a CBD line or a fiber line, right? It's not known to be a THC um, dominant plant. So I think there's a lot to be done going back and sequencing a lot of the land races. Uh, to try and find some of these extinct cannabinoid genes or genes that just aren't in the commercial dispensary market that are getting propagated there. There's probably a lot of exploring to do in some of these um, these older varietals that may not have been hyperbred in, in one can cannabinoid direction or the other. And then the reason I, I say that is that these things are all competing for precursor. So when you when you when you drive a plant toward making you know solely THC, it's going to come at a cost of of making the other cannabinoids. Uh, it's, it's rare that you find a type two plant that's making 20% of both CBD and THC. It's usually making 10 and 10 of each, mm -hmm. right? And that's because it's limited on the amount of precursor that you can feed into the pathway. And since they're competing for those resources, uh, they, they can't make the whole library of them. So maybe some of the earlier land races that were less, perhaps less potent on the THC and CBD front might have higher concentrations of the other cannabinoids. Um, I don't know. That's that's just a theory of mine that I, I suspect would be true if we went back and surveyed many of these other uh, land races that aren't that haven't necessarily been bred for uh, fiber production or CBD production or THC production. We might start to find some of these rare cannabinoids. Interesting. And then you mentioned that there are now cultivars out there, strains of cannabis that have, for example, high CBG. What what do those look like genomically, and how common are those at this point? Um, those are somewhat rare. Uh, there's one here in front of you. If the screen share is still on, you can see one called Double Black Label that just came through mm -hmm. sequencing fairly recently. Um, and this one is got a very interesting mutation. Uh, you know, let me, let me I'll find a I'll, let me pop under another one to make sure. I think this is one as well. It's the CBG right in the name, um, just so everyone's convinced it is what you'll see here is they don't have any cbd synthase gene so they, they're not making cbd hmm. but the thc gene is there so that was real odd to us that's what kind of went put us down this road of um of looking at these things a little bit more deeply so what you can do on canopedia is that you can see that over here is the variant frequency in the population so one of these variants the serine 355 asparagine this thing is only at 1.8 percent population frequency in the database um, this one we see all the time, this pro 333 arginine THC synthase, it's in a lot of type one plants. So it's like, this probably isn't the damaging mutation that's taking it out. Cause we have really high, um, THC rich plants that have it. Um, and it's, it's 18% of the population, right? But this very rare one, um, actually will, you can see if you actually go into this through this little IGV portal we have, oh, there it is. This one here is actually a homozygous mutation. Uh, that means it's a, an amino acid change that is in both the maternal and the paternal genome for this plant. And we believe this is what knocks it out because this is common to a lot of the CBG plants we see in the database is they have this particular mutation uh, that is in THC synthase. And this is right in the zone of the, of the gene that Zerpel has, has heavily mutagenic. He went through mutagenesis and changed a lot of these amino acids. Not this exact one, but a lot of ones in the neighborhood. And uh, for those not familiar, this particular, um, this is called like an S355N mutation. And when this, when there, when things mutate to Ns, you start thinking about glycosylation because those, those amino acids can get glycosylated. And when they get, get, 
glycosylated, what Zerpel showed is that that alters the efficiency of the enzyme. Sometimes when you glycosylate, it gives you more THC and sometimes it, it knocks it, knocks it down. Um, in this case, we suspect it's knocking it down uh, because it's only being found in, in THC or I'm sorry, in CBG lines. I see. So, so the moral of the story here is this is a plant. This is a type of cannabis plant that produces high levels of CBG in the end. And the way that that plant is doing that is that it has on the one hand gotten rid of somehow the CBD synthase gene. So it has no potential at all to make CBD basically. And then the THC synthesis gene is there, but it has acquired a mutation that probably renders it really bad at turning the CBG acid into THC acid. Yes, that's, that's, that's our going theory. And, and what's really interesting is we found one sample in the database. Um, let me see if I can pull it up. Doug's Varen is in here, right? Everyone know, everyone may know Doug's Varen as being a, a THC B line, right? Oh yes. That's, that's the one from California. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm missing an S. I get this database. Not, not do that in the search, but uh, doo, doo, doo. there we go. Uh, so what's interesting about Doug's Varen is it has the same two mutations. So initially, when we saw this, like ah, oh, this destroys the whole theory because uh, this thing makes THC and THCB. But um, what's interesting about Doug's Varen is it's heterozygous at this position. Uh, so it's got one copy that works and one that doesn't. Uh, and what's really interesting about the, the cannabinoid profile in this, which happened to come on the, on the vial, we got this in California, um, is it was like making half THC and half CPG. Uh, so it's got one gene in here that can clearly turn THC over, but probably needs two to really convert all of the CBG into THC. Mm. Um, it was making some THC and THCV, uh, a ratio of those. It was, was I think it was like 2.6% THCV. Uh, we have a chemotype in, the, in this preprint we put forward, but for those who are familiar with THC synthesis, um, the THC synthase gene has no bearing on whether it's a varin or not. That's something upstream, uh, in the process of making the precursors. Mm -hmm. uh, so THC synthase, if you put it into yeast, if you just change the, um, there's a great presentation on the CanMed from Dimitrix that did this, where they just changed the precursors going in, like the hexanoic acid, they would just make that a larger carbon chain and you'd end up with either shorter or longer THC molecules at the other end. Um, so they actually showed uh, the synthesis of THCP, that one that's like a, a seven carbon chain, that's 30 times more potent that was found in Italy and, and Carmagnolia. They actually were able to pull that off in the lab by feeding the yeast different precursors in the THC synthase gene um, I have to confirm whether it was TSC synthase or CBD synthase, but a similar mechanism um, would just output different carbon chains off the tail. So uh, we're not surprised by the fact that this is a THCV line, but it's making like 10% THC, 3% THCV, but it comes along, uh, along with it is like an, in, an incomplete conversion of CBG into THC. You get high levels of CBG in this line because it's carrying... Um, this home, this heterozygous mutation where it's got one copy maybe from the mother and one from the father that are different here, uh, and it's got one gene that's not fully active, another that is. I see. So Doug's Varen is a cultivar that produces, that will have in it in the end, THC, CBG, and THCV. The absolute levels of THC are higher than CBG or THCV, but much lower than typical strain that you would find in a dispensary. And it has a few percentage points of both CBG and THCV. Yeah, yeah. Let me. Um, I should be able to pull this out of a uh, a preprint right now. That's. I'm sorry. I go for a new window here. Um, 
Oh, you can, I'm sorry. I'll do, let me do it in this window where you can see it. Uh, yeah. let's, let's open up the wrong window. Uh, but there's a osf.io. Um, see. Oh, wait, no, no. I think this one's on Zenodo. Sorry. My, my preprint server is mixed up. Right here. So this is the, there's, this is the paper describing this particular conundrum of, um, And it should be in here. Wow. Uh, that's not what I wanted. Okay, so you're probably not seeing this, are you? Yeah, I can see it. Okay, so there's Doug's Varen right there. So that you can see the chemotype on it. So it's making some, some uh, just keep in mind, it's not fully decarboxylated, so it's coming out as THCA. Mm-hmm. CBGA. So it's around four, four and a half percent CBGA and maybe a little Oh, wait, more. no, no. I think there's something else you're pointing to that I okay. can't see. All right. Let me see if I can. Oh, you know what? There's a way to do that on share. Well, let me show the screen. New share is right here. How's that? There we go. Okay. So you can see the chemotype down here is got a little bit of THCV. And then you got to really combine THC with THCA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's maybe 11%. And then the CBG and the CBGA are maybe adding up to almost four and a half, five percent 5%, right? I see. So yep. we, we suspect this is incomplete conversion of CBG because the one of the THC genes is broken, like a, like a, a CBG line. But I see. There's one floating around that can still trickle some, some of the THC out. And the fact that it's a Varen has nothing to do with these, these four genes that we're showing you. That's something that's still yet to be discovered. Um, we, we, we have some hints, but there's so few of these plants out there. We only have like three samples in the database that are Varen related. I think it's this one and um, another black, uh, is it black mamba? No, there's one that we got out of um, in Hopland out of a dispensary up there that had, it had like 7% uh, THCP. But we don't have a lot of those samples to like, you know, we have, we see mutation in one of the genes upstream of the pathway, but it's an N of three. So we can't really do anything with that until we get more um, variant samples in to confirm if that's the variant that actually confers um, whether you make a propyl or a pencil side chain. I see. And what do, um, I mean, what, if anything, do we know in terms of what people say, at least the effects of this particular cultivar are given that it's got this uh, pretty unique profile? You know, that's, it's interesting. Um, I've always heard that I, I've not had a lot of experience with these like THCV I've heard like suppresses appetite. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, personally have no, have, have limited experience with it. Um, and then CBG is known to be an anxiolytic and has s- some similar properties to CBD on that front. But I, you know, I know of people that take CBG, um, because CBD gives them t- uh, tinnitus or tinnitus. Hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's certainly, you know, it's a different molecule and, and perhaps provides um, some anxiolytic behavior in, in a different way. Um, but there's, there's, there's some studies out on prostate cancer too, but they're, they're, it's much more limited. I'm, what's really exciting about what's going on in the cannabis field today is that we now have these like full born, you know, CBG cultivars so we can make these CBG oils uh, and we can start to, you know, uh, we can start to tease this apart a little bit better, but those weren't really around. I didn't see, you know, five years ago, CBG lines were hard to find. Maybe two yeah. years ago, we started to see like Miriam's Hope and a variety of other people, pr- you know, provide CBG oils. And only today am I finding them in gummy bears, like in local dispensaries, that they have like one to one to one gummy bears that have 
five milligrams of each, like THC, CBD, and CBG. Hmm. So it's, it seems like it's kind of a new game, uh, which is kind of exciting. How um, how far are we, or how difficult is it genomically in terms of how you would breed these things to to make a plant that is you know THCV dominant? That's making you know. The same the same proportion of THCV that other plants make THC or any other cannabinoid. Are we right around the corner from that, or is that something that's going to take years to develop? Well, the, we certainly worked with a few people that have done it already. Um, Oregon CBD. I, I can't I can't speak exactly how they did this. Uh, they used some of our SNP chips to to low to zero in on a on a location in their genome that was predictive of CBDV production. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming those same genetics, if they were crossed into a type one plant, would probably give them a THCV. Um, uh, dominant production. Uh, but what they did is they, they did a study of a, probably a couple hundred um, cultivars, or I should say across that they did to track down uh, which of the offspring had the, the particular expression and then tried to pin that down to a particular SNP from a SNP chip that, uh, that we sell. And then they converted that into a qPCR assay to track it in their genetics. And we've been begging them to turn that into a qPCR assay for the rest of the field. But the, the information I've gotten back from Seth is that uh, when they've tried to track that that variant in other populations, it hasn't been as predictive as it is in their own. So th- there may be this convergent evolution thing going on on that front as well, where mm. uh, there you can't bank on uh, one variant dictates everything in uh, in the in the cannabis population. Um, so he didn't think it'd be very fruitful to to run his assay globally because it wasn't necessarily predictive outside of his his lineages. But he was able to utilize that to breed his uh, Varen lines. Um, they also found an autoflower flower allele in that same um, study, uh, which again was something we we asked if it would be applicable to the broader market, and they didn't think it would be because they weren't finding it to uh, to predict things outside of their um, their family. So uh, what they did is they went through and just carefully selected their, their parents and, and designed the right study to, to cross them and look at the offspring and quantitate some of these outcomes in the offspring with, um, with other quantitative assays like uh, HPLC. And in the case of autoflower, it's time to flower. Um, and then correlated that with genetic markers. And they were able to zero in markers that could predict um, how this would behave with their mothers and fathers. But unfortunately, it seems like in cannabis, those studies all have to be done with your, with your own mothers and fathers because what we learned from Seth may not always uh, superimpose itself on another genetic background. Interesting. So if we, um, let's go out of the screen share here. Yes. Yeah. How do we, are you in control it or do I need to? Um, I think you do just, just hit the stop, stop button at the top. I think there we go. Perfect. 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 All right. So we've, we've covered a lot so far to do with the cannabis genome. One thing that I want to step back and describe for people is, you know, you've mentioned QPCR, and PCR generally. So this is the polymerase chain reaction. Yes. This is a very common, commonly used, very powerful technology that's used to do genomics stuff. So it's going to, I think, help people understand other things that I want to talk about. But at a, at a very basic level for people that don't have a background in the relevant biology here, what is PCR and how does it work? So PCR is a very sensitive tool. Uh, it's, it amplifies DNA by copying it with a polymerase, and it, it works uh, in, a, in a, an exponent on like a log two scale. What that means is it doubles every single cycle. So the, if you have a single molecule in the reaction, after one cycle of PCR, you'll have two. After two cycles, you'll have four. Then you'll have eight. Then you'll have 16, 32. So this quickly explodes into being able to pick up single molecules in within, usually within 40 cycles of PCR. Now, that being said, whenever you're using things that amplify to that degree, you have to have very, very tight controls. 
uh, because you can amplify the wrong thing. Uh, and uh, it, it, this is the, the specificity of PCR is, is very dependent on the primers that you use to pull out what you want. So for instance, if, you, if you're not careful and you design a set of primers inside THC synthase, it's very likely that they're going to amplify CBD synthase, CBC synthase, and many of the other cannabinoid genes. You have to be very careful putting primers in those genes to make sure they specifically amplify the cannabinoid gene that you're looking for. Otherwise, it'll run off and do all types of harm, amplifying the wrong stuff. Um, this is something that I think plagued the whole coronavirus epidemic. And, and one, one reason I was really outspoken about it is I saw what was going on. It was like, we could never get away with this in the cannabis field. This is just like horrific what they're doing. And it was that they, they put... PCR assays out there without any controls and without any guidance on what CT they should be using to call a sample positive. So why are the controls really important? Well, PCR gives you a number of as to what CT this um, exponential amplification crossed a, 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 a threshold of fluorescence. Mm -hmm. When these PCR reactions amplify, you can do some tricks where you make them fluoresce in the process and in concordance to how much DNA to synthesize. Actually, so, so Kevin, before we get into this, let's, let's try and give people a very simple cartoon example of this. Yeah. So let's say um, you and I are both suspects in some crime and they've got, they've got a sample from the crime scene and they want to see if your DNA versus my DNA is present. How would they do that in a way that makes it um, unmistakable that it's one of us and not the other one? So that's a good point. Um, the way they currently do this with the FBI is with the CODIS database system, and they will either use um, STRs, which is they amplify these short tandem repeats that have variable lengths, and um, those are multi-allelic loci, and they can use about 13 of those to, to pin somebody down. But there's a lot more information in an STR, uh, and the reason they went with STRs for some of that is because of the technologies in the past were easier at, at looking at fragments at a different lengths versus fragments that were the same length with a different base. Technology's changed today where now it's easier to look at single nucleotide changes of fragments of the same length uh, with SNP chips and what have you, but you need more of them. You arguably need about a hundred SNPs to, to, to really get somebody uh, to have the confidence of, of, you know, one in a billion type of um, confidence to put somebody or prosecute somebody. So they might look at a hundred variants in your, in your, in your, in your genome they will use PCR and then probably some um, either allele-specific PCR method or some other sequencing process to read the differences between those fragments. Because in the case of SNPs, they're usually always the same length assay that you're amplifying. So different than, than the STRs where you're amplifing and looking for a length change in the DNA where then you can run through gel, here you're looking at point mutations in the, in the genome. So when you want to do that with PCR, which people aren't doing necessarily in coronavirus testing, they're just checking presence absence of a virus. But if you want to do allele-specific PCR, you've got to be much more careful that you design primers that are very sensitive to amplifying one allele versus the other and labeling them differently. Mm -hmm. according. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is, you know, if, if we're at the crime scene and we want to find if Kevin's DNA or my DNA is present, we can use PCR to do that, to detect the DNA with very high sensitivity. The problem is, as we mentioned earlier, right, our genomes are highly similar to each other. Yes. So, you know, most of our genes are going to be exactly the same. So the question is, well, how do you yeah. tell us apart? Well, you have to find a gene that's different between me and you, and maybe it's only slightly different. And then you have to use this thing called a primer, which is just a, like a little piece of DNA that'll stick to that particular region of the genome. And you have to be careful about making sure that primer is specific to the version I have or the version Kevin has, but not both. Exactly. Exactly. And this, this is something that has plagued um, the virus testing front because 
they're not doing allele-specific PCR with the viruses, and these are RNA viruses that mutate a lot. So we'll keep hearing about new variants that come out, but they screw up the PCR assays, like the S-gene target fails. Uh, you know, that's because they, they didn't design that to be necessarily allele-specific. And not that they should have, but that's just a, a limitation of them having primers. When, when SNPs fall under your primers, they don't amplify, right? Unless you anticipate that, that variant into your primary cell. Um, but it just shows you that you can't you can do allele specific PCR, and when the alleles change, PCR sometimes fails. Uh, that is certainly something we we had challenges with when we were designing these sex tests on cannabis. We didn't we didn't appreciate how polymorphic the Y chromosome was, so we we kept rolling out assays that worked in one genetic population, were readily able to predict males and females. We go into a new population, and suddenly our Y chromosome had a variant under our primers, and our, our assay was failing in calling males female, uh, right? So we have, we, we've made four different versions of that test now to dance around a variety of variants that are in the Y chromosome that we keep discovering. Um, and now it's no longer a single test. It's like a, a test that's multiplexed and targets multiple regions of the Y to deal with the fact that the Ys are so different. Mm -hmm. um, th that's, a, that's a presence absence test that has to be, do the opposite of what you're asking. It has, to, it has to not get tripped up on the fact that we have differences. When you actually want to identify those differences, you have to get a very allele specific PCR going or do sequencing of the PCR products when you're done to know, uh, to, to split apart the differences that might exist between me and you. Mm -hmm. So when PCR testing is used in the context of a COVID test, you get your nose swab. If the virus is inside of you, it'll be contained in that sample. And PCR is going to be good at detecting the presence of that virus because it's going to amplify up um, some of the genetic material that's there. Can you sort of unpack that for us and help us think about what that means for things like false positive and false negative rates? Yeah, so that's a, it's, it's a really important point in that when you swab your nose, um, there's a paper out there from DADU, uh, D-A, I think it's D-A-D-O-U-H, that goes through the amount of variance you get swabbing your nose. And it's like a thousand to 10,000 fold variance swabbing between people. Um, so this, that's a big problem because when you want to test for viruses, knowing the amount of virus you have there is kind of a number in space. What you really need is the number of viruses per human cells. So you need the denominator. Mm. And some of the first tests that came to market didn't have the denominator. And the way you typically measure the denominator is you amplify a human gene and a viral gene at the same time. And you'll look at the ratios of those CT values. I see, I see. So, so uh, what you're saying is when you do the, the nose swab, it's sort of like sticking a, sp a spoon up your nose or something. And you're going to yeah. scoop out a different amount of virus for each person. And part of that could just be, you know, you got unlucky or lucky with the scoop and got more. What you want to know is how many viral particles per human cell. So you actually need to, to get both. You need two numbers. Yeah, yeah, you need two numbers. And the tests that don't have two numbers are really, clinically, that would never be allowed laboratory pre-2020, but I think in the in the panic of the pandemic, people just ran with the first test that came to market. And and, uh, and if, now, now the thing about the that that market is there's like there's hundreds of different tests in the market. So I don't want to speak broadly about them all. Some of them do have internal controls, and that's what and that's what you need is you need something that measures that human denominator so you can gauge how much viral load you have. When you don't have that denominator, you get in all types of arguments with people as to what the CT value should be for cutoff. Well, if, if you can vary by a thousand, that's like, you know, that's like 10 CTs. Like, you know, you're never going to, you're never going to agree on what the CT value should what be. Is, what is oh, CT? Oh, that's, that's the cycle threshold at which the signal goes positive in PCR. And, and so the later it is, the less DNA you have. And the earlier it is, the more you have, and it's on mm. a log two scale. So every number represents a doubling. So going from, uh, you go out 3.3 CTs and that's actually tenfold differences. Uh, and then you go out 6.6 .6 CTs, that's a hundredfold and 10 CTs mm -hmm. is, is basically a so, thousandfold. 
so so would an example here be um let's imagine two people that get a nose swab and there is some viral particles in both of them. One person is legitimately sick. They have lots of viral particles inside of them. And so there's lots of viral DNA there. And, and in fact, they are, they are sick with COVID. The nose swab will pull out a bunch of viral particles. There will be many particles per human cell. And PCR will be able to detect that quickly. So, so very few cycles will be able to see it. But yes. the other person could just have, you know, just, just to use a cartoon example, maybe there's just one or 10 viral particles that they sniffed up, not enough to make them sick. Yes. Um, but you just happen to scoop those out. And you can detect that as positive if you do many, many cycles of this test, even though it's not enough viral particles to actually be yes. uh, causing sickness. That's right. So there's there's a couple of things going on here. There's one, the sampling variance in the nose is so wide that you need an internal control to know it. The second issue with this virus is that it has a very long lifespan in your body after you're no longer um, spreading it. Mm. So the, the papers will show that you might be you may be infectious for about seven days, but you could be PCR positive for 70 days. Mm. And that's because the way this virus infects cells, um, it gets kind of... Um, when it attaches to ACE2 receptors, it gets kind of invaginated into the cell and it stays inside this double wall membrane inside the cell. So that virus, even when it's no longer replicating in your cell, your cell needs to die for that thing to go away and your immune system to clear it. And so what we're seeing is this RNA from this virus based on its unique biology sits around, hides from the immune system by hiding inside your cells, inside of like almost its own nucleus inside of a cell, what they call these double wall vesicles. Um, and uh, the immune system can't clear it out, but it, it, may, it may effectively keep it from, from budding from the cell. Anything that buds out of the cell, it can whack down because antibodies and T cells have figured it out, but it can stay hiding in your cells for, for, for months. So we often find people are still PCR positive. This is why the CDC has like a moratorium on PCR 90 days out. Like don't do it again after 90 days because you'll probably still be positive and, it'll be a, and you, won't be, mm -hmm. you won't be sick. Now that's not really a, um, a analytical false positive by PCR. It's finding the RNA and it's really right. there, but it's a clinical false positive in that it's no longer a quarantine risk. Right, right. I think that's where the PCR went off the rails is they conflated analytical false positives, with clinical false positives. Because in the past, we would never just use a single test to make clinical decisions. We would say, are, are you symptomatic? And do you have an antigen test that's mm -hmm, positive? Mm -hmm. And doctors consider a lot of its information in making a clinical call. But in the urgency of the pandemic, everyone just said, screw it, we're going to use PCR as the doctor now. And we're going to call any, anyone who's RNA positive uh, infectious when they're not and quarantine you know, too much society to the point where we quarantine the nurses who need to be in the hospitals. So it got a little bit out of hand, not handling this kind of long tail of PCR positivity we have with RNA. There are correlates to this that we should learn from in the cannabis industry. When we're testing for pathogens in cannabis, we need to be very careful we don't call dead pathogens a problem, right? So we, we've, we've, we've designed some tools that try to obliterate any RNA or DNA that's not inside of the cell membrane. Wouldn't necessarily handle this thing with SARS because of the unique biology in SARS, but it does handle a lot of um, uh, cases where you have dead DNA floating around that PCR picks up that doesn't show up on plates, uh, but we see it. Well, we have tools that erase that DNA uh, because that DNA is very susceptible to nucleases that chew it up. And these nucleases can't get inside of a living cell and chew up that DNA. So we have ways of kind of sorting out this live dead problem in the, in the, the microbial testing that we do in the cannabis field. Um, but it's an important lesson is that one, you really got to have these internal controls to know how much, how much pathogen are you measuring in relationship to the cannabis plant? We do that by targeting the cannabis genome with, with an internal control. And also 
can you sift apart the live dead problem? Uh, how many of these pathogens are still living and how much of it is just free circulating DNA from dead, from dead organisms? Um, that, that stuff you can handle with nucleases. So we've now touched on COVID testing, and we've obviously spent some time talking about the cannabis genome. An interesting intersection here that was making rounds in the news recently based on some new studies that are out are the potential antiviral effects, antiviral meaning anti-SARS-CoV-2 effects of some of these cannabinoids. In particular, there's a study out now, I'll actually talk to one of the lead authors on one of the next episodes, showing apparently that CBD, at least at a certain concentration, can have antiviral effects for SARS-CoV-2. So can you talk about that result a little bit and what, what you think about it? Yeah, I love that paper, actually. Um, and Ethan Russo just did a cast on the, on the CanMed group here. That um, Ethan's a great, a great read and, and one to listen to this because he's been through a lot of these clinical trials and understands some of the dosing elements here. But what I gathered from a quick read of that paper uh, was that what I found very fascinating is, is that oftentimes with CBD studies, we don't have the ability to run these things on patients. So we do them in rats and other animal models, and the dosages are often way too high that we're never going to get to in, in humans. But it did sound like they did some, they made some effort in that paper to go, and look at the micromolar concentrations of CBD in the blood of patients who are receiving 1500 milligrams in like epidiolex. And they could see that, okay, they're at around like 0.5 or 1.5 micromolar in the blood. So, so, so these patients were people taking epidiolex, which is the prescription CBD you can get for epilepsy. And they're taking something like 1500 milligrams per day. And then this study group not only knew that about them, but they actually went in and looked at what the um, concentration at that dose of CBD was in their blood. Right. And, and that's about on their EC50 curve where they start to see some response. So they're looking at um, different amounts of, of CBD that are given over time. And then looking at viral, viral load. <clears throat> Excuse me, let me just get some water on this. I've got mm-hmm. something in my throat here. Yeah, but so, once so, they've, um, so that, that's very important because you got to know how much dosage you need. And then 1500 milligrams is a lot, right? But the, ep- the epilepsy kids manage it, but it's not what you're going to get like at a gas station and it's 20 milligram drink, right? Yep. Uh, so you're never going to get there that way. Uh, and it could be, it could be quite expensive. I mean, CBD is still uh, 1500 milligrams. You're going to take that every day. It's going to add up, but um, it's still promising when it's pointing toward a pathway. Uh, and maybe some other tweaks in the cannabinoids. Like maybe if you've got a heptal side chain on the CBD, maybe maybe it'd be more potent. I don't know. Um, but it's definitely showing that it can it can restrict the um, the growth of the virus in those settings. They also then looked at um, some studies in mice, uh, and then they looked at patients that were on sort of epidemiology epidemiology. How many patients out in the world are on CBD, and uh, do they have a different COVID positivity rate. And they, they saw some signal there, which I thought was, uh, which I thought was very impressive. But there, there's another angle of this. I hope when you have him on um, to um, bring up to him is that there's the, the, the viral stage of the disease is one problem and you definitely want to try and fix that. But after it's been in there, it's cleaning up the mess of the virus. Like there's this long stage of, of like cytokine storms that occur, not when the virus is there, but after. Mm. Trying to and and what that. is that? What is a cytokine storm? Uh, it's your immune system goes crazy and starts attacking it, uh, sometimes itself because it's, 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 it's been revved up to fight this virus and the virus has got all these broken parts floating around now that it's only replicating. And it, it, it's, um, there's a lot of high interleukin-6. There's um, just an, an overaggressive immune response to try and clean up the mess. And that has proven to be more deadly than the virus itself. 
right? So there, there are a lot of these early therapies. They're not just about using like ivermectin or monoclonal antibodies. They combine them with dexamethasone and other steroids to try and tune down the immune system so we don't overreact to the cleanup process. Um, and there's some very interesting work from a gentleman by the name of Mohammed. It's the last name of the paper where they're looking at using THC to reduce the impact of um, what's known as Staphylococcus enterotoxin B. All right, this is a, a very super antigenic peptide that comes out of the Staph um, genome. However, it's got a 20 amino acids that it shares in the SARS genome, which is bizarre. Um, it's in there. But that's known, and a gentleman named Chang et al. published in PNAS, the fact that that SAB domain in SARS is the reason why we get cytokine storms. And so it's right there, right adjacent to the, the fear and cleavage site that's so unique to SARS. So what is that? And, and how do we deal with that? And will the cannabinoids actually help deal with the cleanup process as well? I, I think that study did a great job looking at the concentrations needed to reduce viral load, but we should also be thinking about um, can CBD and cannabinoids be playing a role in comorbidities, right? Uh, if you look at a lot of the comorbidities, COPD and obesity and, and uh, chronic pain, and a lot of these things are inflammatory diseases that make you more prone to SARS. So I think there's a whole role of cannabinoids in that front. And then secondarily to just reducing the viral load, may, maybe ivermectin and other tools are better at reducing the viral load. Um, when you look at some of the, there's certainly more clinical trials on this, right? Um, but the cleanup stage is where I think the cannabinoids are probably going to have the bigger impact because they're known to modulate cytokine storms. And I think there's actually direct evidence from this gentleman from Mohammed showing that THC in particular was very good at driving down the cytokine storms that were generated from SE. SEB is the, the acronym for Staphylococcus enterotoxin B. This is the, 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 the super antigenic peptide that we know is in the SARS virus that's also in staph that creates these, um, these types of toxic shock syndrome-like um, events that we get. Um, so I, I think there's, um, there's more than just the viral load thing going on that we have to pay attention to. There's treating the comorbidities and perhaps treating the, the, um, the hyperinflammation that can occur after the viral infection that, that may be playing a role. Interesting. Yeah. So, so yeah. So when people get really, really sick with COVID-19, they typically get these things called cytokine storms. And it's just this, this sort of hyper overreaction of the immune system. And in some sense, it's your own immune system that's killing you because it's, it's overactive. Yeah, yeah indeed. And that, that's what, that's what drives a lot of the, um, the buildup of fluids in the lungs and the virus is, is gone by then. This is why I think some of these remdesivir trials aren't working so well is they don't give people remdesivir until they're in the hospital and it's too late, the virus is gone by then, you're treating, and that, that's something that stops the replication of the virus, right? Uh, it, it's not, at that stage, they need, they, they need dexamethasone and other things to tamp down the immune system. So on the subject of COVID, you know, we've, we've, now, we've now got these new type of vaccines that everyone should be at least somewhat familiar with at this, this point. I so know. the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are the, are the mRNA vaccines, meaning they literally contain inside of them small stretches of mRNA, which in this case encode uh, the spike protein of the virus. And the idea is you put these, this mRNA into your body, your cells suck it up. They then make the spike protein and only the spike protein from the virus. So you don't get the full virus inside of you, but that spike right. protein can then be presented to your immune system. And that's what gives you this immunological reaction. Now, my question for you, Kevin, on, on the genomic side of this is if you take out the mRNA from one of the uh, mRNA vaccines that encodes a spike protein and you put it side by side with the equivalent mRNA from the virus, are they exactly, exactly the same or are there differences oh, between yeah. them? They're very, they're very different. So 
um, first, let me just qualify this by, I'm probably more vaccinated than anybody because of all of my lab work and dealing with these bugs you see behind me. Uh, so I've had to get, I've had to get, I'm, I'm a pincushion for, for vaccines because of my days of Whitehead, we handled a lot of viruses and I had to get vaccinated for everything. So I'm not anti-vax when I come out and say this. Uh, there are very uh, material differences between the vaccine RNA and um, the actual virus, the spike protein, and we shouldn't conflate all vaccines here. The, the, the two that um, have messenger RNAs that are delivering them with lipid nanoparticles are kind of unique in this regard, and that in order for them to do that delivery, both Moderna and Pfizer decided to swap out the uridines in the mRNA with the modified nucleoside known as N1-methyl uh, pseudouridine. That's a different base. That's a base that's a little sloppier. Um, it has much higher melting temperatures uh, than uridine. So if you make an oligo with uridines all swapped out, even just four of them inside of a 25 mer, it will change the TM markedly, like more so than swapping uh, from pyrimidines to, to purines. So it has a huge impact on the melting temperature. So, so is that, does that basically mean that this is affecting the stability of the mRNA molecule? This is the, this is the reason it was put in, is, is that the folks at Penn realized if you, the RNases can't cut this, right? So RNases oftentimes target the uracils and cleave the RNA and it clears the RNA out of the body so that you get really ephemeral expression of the RNA. Uh, and that can be important for a lot of cell biology in that they the cell is anticipating these RNAs to get expressed at a certain level and to, to also decay at the same level because timing on, on making these things is important for, for, um, for cell circuitry. So when you, when you then introduce an RNA that doesn't decay at all, sits around for a long period of time and hyper-expresses inside of cells, it, it can throw off other, other types of, of cell biology. But their goal is, this is early on, they didn't know, uh, their biggest concern was the RNA would get eaten going in and they just have no effect. So they mm. decorated, every, they changed every single uracil out with, with this pseudouridine, which means it doesn't decay as quickly. However, it also means that tr the translation fidelity is affected because now you have a different base in there and the codons were relying on uracils to teach them what amino acids they should be putting in in the ribosome. And they've shown when you swap that out with pseudouridine, the translation fidelity goes to hell. Uh, and so we don't really know that it's making the exact spike protein that the virus has uh, because the, the coding system has changed. I mean, has anyone looked? That is the biggest problem, when I think, with these vaccines is there's very little documentation of what peptides are being made in vitro. Um, the EMA has a document out asking Pfizer to clarify why they have smears on their Western blots of these things. So they, they do an in vitro transcription and translation reaction, which is a model for what uh, you're saying. So, so when you say smears on the Western blots, what that what that could mean is that instead of producing just the spike protein as it exists in the virus, it's actually producing uh, a range of sort of variant variations. Yeah, like a it. library, for perhaps truncated, right? I mean, one mm -hmm. one other aspect they did, um, which perhaps hindsight is giving us some um, knowledge on this, is that they they codon optimize these as well, which means uh, when when you're coding for an mRNA. Um, there's multiple different codons of code for amino acids and uh, different organisms use these in different patterns, almost like dialects in a language, right? Uh, so humans tend to use a particular codon for arginine, which is CGG, CGG. It's a CGG is the most common codon usage for arginine. The virus uses a different one um, to code for arginine. Uh, and so they, they change the, the uh, we have a, I have a preprint out on this where if you just take the GC content of these two, of, of the mRNAs that are in the vaccines and compare it to the virus, they shift radically because they codon optimize them. Well, when you codon optimize things, uh, the ribosomes move at different rates. 
uh, and when the ribose, because they're, they're searching to find the anti-codon tRNA. And if you happen to use a really rare one in a, in a human cell, then it has to go find that, that, that rare codon to put into the ribosome and read it. And so they move these away from the, the codons that the viruses had evolved to use, which I think maybe that was a mistake, right? That the viruses chose the, that, those codon frequencies for a reason. And maybe that's part of its functionality is that it used rare codons so that when humans make it, it doesn't make too much of it. They then hypercharged this thing by using all humanized codons so that it should make even more spike protein. But more spike protein may not be good. Um, mm. right? Spike protein is what is believed to be the, the most toxic protein in the, in, in the virus and making a lot of it, while that might drive an a, a accelerated immune response, it might also drive a lot of pathology that's, that you don't see with the virus. So um, when they did this codon optimization, the GC content of the RNA has changed radically. When you do that, the, R, the RNA doesn't fold the way it's anticipated, and, and you form all of these quadruplex G units inside of the RNA, and that affects all types of other cell circuitry. But the ribosomes also don't pause the way they normally pause. And they've shown that if the ribosome rate of translation changes, the folding of the protein on the back end of this doesn't happen in the same way. So while you might have the same amino acid sequence, given that you didn't have the fidelity issue with pseudouridine, assume, assume the pseudouridines didn't make any mistakes mm -hmm. and you get the same amino acid sequence. It can still be it, different because the folding is different. Differently. Uh, and there's a great paper on this about ribosomal pausing. They actually can see this happening right in the furin cleavage site where they change the amino acid sequences to be very human, uh, humanized. That the, the, the folding between the S1 and the S2 changes because there's ribosomal pausing that now happens uh, because of that codon change. So uh, it's very complicated biology that we often, you know, the whiteboard of this where there's a codon table on mRNA and the stop codon and the start codon, and it makes Doesn't exactly capture everything. Page really doesn't capture the complexity that goes on in the biology. So, you know, my, my biggest concern on them is we don't have good evidence of what these things make. I cannot find, I hope someone can correct me on this because I've been looking through the literature and there's so much COVID literature, I'm, pro I'm probably missing it. But the fact that the EMA couldn't find it either and Pfizer hasn't responded to these requests makes me think the data is not out there, uh, which is when you put these through an in vitro transcription and translation, or in this case, just in vitro translation reaction, you get a smear on a gel, not a band. You should get a single band. In fact, the DNA vaccines give you a single band. Um, the, the DNA vaccines mm. don't have pseudouridine in them. Um, so we can see the, the, like the adenovirus vaccines. Those things they've demonstrated, they make a single band. And sometimes these bands are not one band because they're the glycosylated and we understand that. But what we're seeing on the Pfizer one, at least in this EMA document, is there's a smear and they don't know what it is. Uh, which means we're injecting people with these things. Really, really what we're injecting was with a pro-drug where the active drug has not been fully characterized. I see. So, so to summarize so far, RNA, we're talking about mRNA and the four letters that go with RNA that are used in RNA molecules are A, U, G, and C. So the mRNA that encodes the spike protein as it's found in the, um, in the virus itself uses A, U, G, and C. Now, the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna use A, G, and C, but a different version of the U letter. And That's the right. reason they had to do that was to stabilize the mRNA molecule so it didn't get chopped up so quickly that there was no immune reaction because they're trying to make a, a vaccine yes. that does that. The consequence of that, that we haven't fully characterized yet, because apparently no one has done the work to fully characterize it, is that this can actually allow that mRNA that contains that that other kind of nucleotide to make 
a different form of the protein than what we think it's making, meaning it's going to make the protein we think it's making, but potentially also make other variations of it. And that's why you see things like these smears in these Western blots. Yeah. And there's some evidence beginning to build up in other papers. I think um, Fancel et al. Has, has a figure in their paper that, that tries to characterize some of these in cells, and they, they do see a couple more bands. Uh, it's a great paper. It shows that some of these spike proteins are circulating on exosomes in your bloodstream four months later um, hmm. in the vaccinated. Uh, Bruce Patterson's lab's done a lot of work looking at long COVID, um, and they're starting to see in the vaccinated, there's a mutated form of S1 that uh, their papers, uh, I'm, I'm dying to see their papers about to come out in the next couple of weeks, but in a preprint form. Uh, but they've also noted that contrary to being infected with the virus, uh, there's certainly long COVID going on there. They're seeing some kind of long COVID-like symptoms in people that are vaccinated, and there's this different S1 protein floating around. We don't yet know if this is because of the mRNA or if this is like just glycosylation is different or mm-hmm. uh, waiting, dying to see what the paper has to say about it. But um, there's another paper mentioned from Jiang in, in our preprint that looks at expressing some of these things and, and getting some some very smeary bands. And then there's the EMA document as well, where the regulators went in and were asking for why are there smears? Is it because the RNA also is fragmented? Because when they synthesize these RNAs, they're not always full length, Right. Uh, so it, it could the smear could be a consequence of there being non-full length messenger RNA floating around. So you get a truncated peptide. Um, it could also be a function of the fact that um, you'll notice if you look at these sequences, um, there's not just one stop codon. They put in two and three. Um, and I think it's because they knew that when you when you replace the stop codons with pseudouridine, and something that's quite common in the literature is that it can create frame shifts over the stop codons. So mm. that the ribosome gets there. It doesn't, doesn't actually stop the top codon because it's pseudouridine and just bumbles and frame shifts and starts making something else after it. So there could be some elongated peptides um, that in uh, and, and the back end of the Pfizer vaccine, there's actually some human peptide sequence in there. If it, if, if it could frame shift over those top codons, which is a big if, it could maybe make some of that. And then you could get some autoimmunity going on. Uh, but the thing is, this is all hypothetical and still up to stuff. And we really need peptide sequencing on what these things make in humans. And some of that work is starting to get done by Bruce Patterson's lab, which is which should be really exciting to see. Interesting. Um, so in the time we have left, let's switch gears a little bit. I know that at Medicinal Genomics, you guys have also been doing uh, psilocybe mushroom or magic mushroom genome sequencing. So what was the impetus for that? And, and what does that genome look like? Uh, so that's a good question. That kind of resurfaced. Um, so many years ago, my father was struggling with, with cancer, and I started reading a lot of these um, JHU cancer depression papers, um, not necessarily for him, but I think for the rest of the family that was kind of dealing with this. But uh, I sequenced his genome way back then and, and tried to put it public anonymously, um, which was a train wreck. I had a really hard time doing that. It's really hard to put sequence data public anonymously. But uh, anyway, the, that... Um, that got us a little bit interested in, in all of the work they showed on how profound those compounds are for depression. Since then, some interesting papers have come out of New England, in New England Journal of Medicine showing uh, comparing sil- uh, psilocybin against other traditional SSRIs, and it has a remarkable safety profile and performs just as well, if not better. Uh, so in this last um, few years when COVID showed up, I realized there was, well, one, there's certainly a lot of depression that's going on, but I, there were some papers showing that fluvoxamine, which is an SSRI, uh, was having remarkable success in COVID. Uh, mm. In fact, now I think they just finished a 9,000-person trial, and WashU is now even recommending it. Um, but fluvoxamine isn't just a serotonin agonist or, or serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It also hits the sigma-1 alpha receptor, which is something mm. that's been known in DMT, that that's yes. one of the targets yes. for DMT. 
uh, and DMT and, and psilocybin are really closely related. There's just like a methyl group that's that's different between a few of these molecules, right? They just they change the methyl group between like psilocybin, uh, psilocin, originates. Yeah. And, and, and this, uh, I'm glad I didn't expect you to bring this up, but that was that was also interesting to me too. The fluvoxamine being a, a sigma one receptor agonist, I believe, because that is a thing that differentiates it from other SSRIs, I believe, right? It is. It is. Yes, and that is. Um, uh, you know, I'm not up to speed on all of the different tricyclics that are out there right now, but that was something I, I, I picked up on reading some of these, these these papers as well. That that's 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 that might be more related to what's going on in SARS and serotonin. But um, serotonin is also a, a, a very involved in platelets, right? So the platelets make make their own serotonin, and and that's that's something I didn't really res, uh, really understand or respect until recently. The, the gut microbiome is incredibly involved. A lot of serotonin receptors in the gut. Um, so, uh, I, I don't fully understand all the biochemistry behind why fluvoxamine is doing what it's doing. Uh, however, I do know that psilocybin is likely a, a mimetic of it and, and maybe even, uh, a safer one, um, in that there's, there's, the, if you look at the, the metabolism of these drugs, that psilocybin is, is there are toxic doses of psilocybin. Uh, you might have a bad experience, but you're not going to toxically overdose from psilocybin. Mm. Uh, and so that, that's really promising. Um, and so I don't know. I just got got us reinvigorated to go look at this again. Uh, let's just go and sequence profile all of these um, these uh, genomes. I, I also the first time we did this many years ago, I wasn't I didn't totally appreciate the the entourage effect that could exist in the mushroom. Like now we know that they're carbolines and there are all of these other MOAs, these monoamine oxidase inhibitors, in some of these mushrooms that might change the way that we metabolize the tryptamines. Uh, we also know a lot more about originacin and norbeocysteine, and it seems like there's another a whole other story very analogous to cannabis where it makes maybe six of these different psychoactive tryptamines and then a host of these other, um, uh, you know, P450 modifiers or monoamine oxidase modifiers that change the way that these, these compounds get metabolized in your system. That there's a tremendous amount of therapeutic potential in this thing, and the genome is much easier to sequence in cannabis, <laughs> right? Mm. So it's only 46 million bases. It's not nearly as repetitive. Uh, so that was a story. Um, we had high molecular weight DNA from a sample here, and, and we couldn't get during the pandemic. We couldn't get access to pack bio sequencing because we outsourced it all, and uh, it was just backlogged for sequencing. I, sus I suspect SARS. Um, and uh, so I called up Seth, saying, "If you asking Seth Crawford, does he have any extra space on one of his next runs because he's doing a ton of sequencing on cannabis?" And he said, "Yeah, send it over." And he blew it through his um, HiFi uh, pack bio system, and like a month later, we had a 32 contig beautiful reference genome. Um, and, and since then, we've been, that was done on the penis envy genome. Um, try writing a scientific paper with that name in it. <laughs> it's, it gets some chuckles. Um, and so uh, we then decided we want to try and get it all into perfect chromosome um, stretches. Uh, so we then put a, what's known as a, a, a high C map across this. This is a technique that's really cool. Uh, it takes DNA from an organism. We had to do this in spores, which was really tricky because we can't handle tissue here. Um, mm. The spores are, are legal for taxonomy purposes, and we think DNA sequencing falls under taxonomy. So um, what we took is we took spores, and you treat them with like a cross-linking agent that cross-links proteins to one another. So this takes the, the proteins on DNA and glues them to one another, which means DNA that's in close proximity is most likely to glue to itself better. Why do we want to do this? Well, when we finished sequencing the genome with Seth, we had 32 pieces of the genome, but we didn't know which ones were in the which ones belonged to which chromosomes. And so, what you can do is do this cross-linking trick that will tell you which one of those pieces are in proximity to one another in the genome on the chromosomes. And 
these high C maps do a wonderful job at binning the contigs of the genome assembly into contig or your chromosome one through 13. So we know we now, now we know we've got 13 chromosomes in the genome in a mitochondria. It's about 46 million bases long. And uh, we've got a beautiful reference grade genome for, um, for the penis semi genome. And then we then, we then went out and sequenced 81 other genomes from B plus to golden teacher to, you know, you name it. Uh, and then mapped all of those reads back to that, um, uh, that original reference genome to look for variants. So we now have a good catalog of all the variants of the most common cubensis lines that are out there and what variants exist in those genes. So you'll probably see it a month from now a Canopedia fork that comes out and does the same thing with psilocybe as it does with, with cannabis. And that will, will have coverage maps over PSIM, PSIK, PSID, PSIH. These are the four genes that are kind of analogous to CBD, THC, and, and, um, and CBC synthase in, in, the, in, the, in the cubensis genome. So we can look for variants in those that might correlate with chemotypes. We're kind of like five years behind cannabis on this front because we don't have good chemotyping right now. There's only a few labs in the world that are that, that do this type of chemo, chemotyping. And sadly, we haven't sequenced any of the samples that have been chemotyped. So if there's anyone out there that does that, call us. We want to sequence any sample you've chemotyped so we can start uh, to draw some of these correlations between genotype and phenotype. I, uh, I think I know someone working on that. So I'll, I'll see if I can. I haven't talked to him in a while, so I'll follow up. Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's sorely needed in that field. But we've got a great map of all the variation out there. We just can't express any of this tissue. So we have to rely on other labs that do that and correlate the results. Mm -hmm. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about is just the general, I just wanted to ask you about blockchain technology. So I know that you guys use it at, at Medicinal Genomics, I believe. So can you describe how you guys use it there? And actually before that, just, just give people a quick blockchain 101. Oh, yeah. So blockchains are, are horrible databases that are distributed all over the world. <laughs> they're, they're very information um, expensive. So you don't put stuff in blockchains unless you want it to never change. And they don't hold a lot of space. So we would never put our entire genomes in blockchains because no one wants to replicate our genetic sequences on millions of computers around the world and synchronize them every, every 10 minutes. Uh, what blockchains are great at doing are storing perhaps fingerprints of, of larger data sets, uh, mm -hmm. hashes of them is what they call them. Great for the cannabis field, another hash. But um, a hash is just a fingerprint of a larger file. And, and it's a unique fingerprint, meaning you change one letter in the original file and the hash completely changes. So what Bitcoin is really doing is it's storing hashes of transactions. Um, so that when you, when you it's a big ledger that everyone replicates the ledger all around the globe. So when I send money to one person, all computers update that I sent money to that person and there's no disagreement over me sending that money to somebody else. Uh, and they synchronize on a certain time scale. But, you know, Bitcoin does it every 10 minutes. Other networks do it every two minutes. You can pick a blockchain that does it faster or slower based on your needs. Um, there's, there's even layers built on top of Bitcoin, like the Lightning Network that can do instant transactions. Um, but what we're using it for is a way to timestamp when data was generated for people. Uh, that's in a database that we can't have, we can't control, right? Uh, what, what you don't want to have is a company who is doing sequencing that declares when a certain sample was sequenced and what it's related to. And if someone can call me up on the side and give me a thousand bucks to go change the timestamp or rearrange the data, right? Uh, or we go out of business and then all the information leaves, right? The, the thing about blockchains is there's a financial motivation for those things to persist in time that will probably outlast a company's lifespan. Um, it's been around for 10 years now. We've been around for, for less than that. But 
there is a monetary incentive to maintain that blockchain all over the world. And it's in a way where you can't just knock out one computer and have it go away. You can't censor the stuff. It's immutable. So immutable records are very valuable for discerning lineages of things and timestamps mm. of things. And whether that be DNA sequencing or patent information or dates of invention, uh, you, you can use it for a variety of these things. Some people use it for NFTs, right? So what we're doing is we're taking people's variant table when we sequence for them. We're creating a hash of that VCF file and we're spending that into the op return, which is a field in the Bitcoin uh, address. Uh, it's not the address, but a field in, in, in the block structure that you can put like metadata in. Uh, we stuff it in there. So it then gets woven into a blockchain transaction and can never be deleted in time. So now we can give someone their DNA sequencing file and say, you have your information. You can run SHA-256 on that file. It will create a fingerprint that exists and a timestamp in a blockchain that no one in the world can ever edit. So you can prove that your file existed in a court of law by just showing that your sequence file creates a hash that has a timestamp in Bitcoin. Uh, so it's, a, it's kind of a digital notarization system when you can't go to a bank to get your plant notarized, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it allows you to kind of bypass the whole, uh, you know, formality of getting someone to put a weird paper print on something. You can just say, you can prove in the court of law that no, my plant had to exist at this time because there's a hash that exists in Bitcoin that matches my sequencing file. Nothing else in the world could have generated that and no one could have ever mutated it. Mm -hmm. so, so blockchains are, they're not good at storing extremely large volumes of data, but they're good at storing small volumes in an extremely secure and immutable way. So if you just want to track when something happened and, and you want to track those timestamps in a way that can't be tampered with, a blockchain is, is your best bet. Exactly. Yeah. You summed it up much more elegantly than I did. <laughs> and so I guess the way that it would work for Bitcoin is um, you're actually not storing an incredible amount of information in the Bitcoin blockchain. All you really need to record is like this much Bitcoin from this address to that address. And it's really yeah. a small amount. Yeah, it's a very small amount. And, and we, you know, there, there are times in our, we've been doing this for five years and there were times when Bitcoin's transaction costs went to like 50 bucks a transaction. And so we, we pivoted to use other blockchains and have the same block structure, like Dash has the same block structure. So it has an op return. We can go into Dash. We can also go into Bitcoin Cash and we can go into Ethereum. Um, those those four blockchains, we've got APIs that can, so people can point it to whatever chain that they feel is their favorite chain. Um, but the, uh, yeah, the important point there is we're just putting a fingerprint of the file into the chain. And to do that, you need a very small amount, a very small transaction fee um, to, to stuff something into the, into the off return. The, min just do the, the minimum amount, the smallest amount will let you do. And then, it, you know, you know, there's usually the, the, the way the Bitcoin network operates is all of these suggested transactions go into a memory pool that all the computers look at that are mining and they sweep from that pool to make the next block and they're in a competition to make it as fast as they can the first person to make it gets the reward so um there's a bit of a fee market if you will a pay by fee market that you can you can attach a higher fee to your transaction and the miners are going to they're basically going to select what goes into the blocks based on the highest fee structure because they make more money that way um, so the fees can vary on this based on market demand, um, which is why we have alternative chains. If people want to put them on different chains. Interesting. So Kevin, what, um, what, what are you most excited about? Not necessarily in your own personal work, but just in, in the world of genomics generally, what's going on right now that really excites you? Well, I, I love the, the, these chromatin capture methods are awesome for cleaning up genomes. Um, the long read tools we have with PacBio now are exceptional in that they, they assemble plant genomes like pr practically on laptops. Um, well, I shouldn't say laptops. The fungal genomes we did on laptops 
um, the cannabis ones, we don't need these massive compute centers now that we have these really high quality reads from PacBio. There's portable sequencers coming out from Oxford. They're, they're not as accurate as PacBio, but they're exciting in that they're very small and we can probably find some really new applications for that in the future. Um, and then I'm, I'm really excited about a lot of the microbial work we're doing and that we're now learning. We have a huge database now of all the mi microbiomes we found in cannabis, the stuff mm. you can see behind me. We're constantly sequencing these things, putting them on different plating mediums to see which organisms grow where and which ones don't. Uh, and we're learning a lot. We're learning like what pathogens do, don't grow on plates that we can find with DNA. And, and some of these are pathogens, uh, you know, one that's in our most recent study, uh, is Pantoa. Pantoma, Pantoa agglomerans is actually published as a plant-promoting uh, microbe on cannabis. There's also some evidence in the literature that if you get this inside of human cuts, like it can give you sepsis and there's, there's problems with it. Um, that's an organism that's like we find in high prevalence in a lot of our microbiome studies. Uh, and we now know it doesn't grow it uh, unless you grow it down at 30C. At 36, you can't, you can't get this thing to grow. So we know that there's there's microbes out there that are pathogen screens are missing that you can only get with PCR. Um, and th that's interesting to us. Uh, we've seen this on like four other organisms as well, where they're, they're just not growing unless you grow them at lower temperatures. Uh, but they do find themselves in clinical cases at the CDC, like there's, 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 there's pathogenic risks for them. So we're beginning to understand like which pathogens we want on the plant that help for promoting the growth and which ones are benign to humans and which ones are actually pathogenic to humans and, and how to separate those with, with the appropriate tools out there. So I think that's where we're going to find a lot of both in the psilocybe space. And I think in the, in the cannabis space, like understanding the microbiome and the fungal um, like mycelium, they're running these things, I think is incredibly important. I mean, we've, we're seeing some evidence now in the literature that even like these, these hops, the hop latent viroid, um, in other crops, some of these viroids actually travel through fungal mycelium networks. All right. So, uh, and, and we have seen with, with at least hop latent viroid, when we go and sample that, the, the plants that are infected with that, it's in the stems, it's in the leaves, it's in the roots, right? It's in the same copy number. Like that's, that's really bizarre to us that we'd find universal expression of this thing in every tissue. Uh, it does make us think that maybe it's, uh, at least we've heard from some growers that have plants in one part of their grow. Uh, and they're not in any mechanical contact with another plant, they can see the other plant get it. So it's not known to be aerosolized. So what the hell is, is making these things communicate this virus if they've been really careful cleaning all the scissors and everything else? So I don't know. I think there's a lot we need to learn about how the plants interact with the rhizosphere and, uh, and the mycelium. And it's probably going to play a role in virus transmission and even um, some of these other um, bacterial transmissions that are going on. Uh, but that's an area that I think is just, uh, it's wide open, very little is known about it. And it seems to play a really critical role in how we regulate cannabis. Like, what are we doing from a microbial testing standpoint? We shouldn't be failing people if they have like beneficial microbe use, mm -hmm. because that's going to push them into pesticides, which are a whole nother, you know, probably train wreck going on. Beneficial microbes, uh, we shouldn't have this world where we're afraid of every single microorganism out there. Mm -hmm. Um like, I think we're, I think we're absolute hypochondriacs when it comes to the SARS virus, because the vast majority of people, it's not symptomatic, right? And, and maybe there's a, an aspect of human biology we haven't fully appreciated here that we need frequent introductions of certain viruses to like boost up our mitochondria or something. There, there, there's probably a role for these things uh, on mutualism that we're not fully understanding because we're panicked. Uh, but I think we're going to find the same in, in, in these cannabis microbiomes that 
we're hyper attentive to maybe aspergillus, but there's probably some species of aspergillus that are beneficial to the plant that we mm. shouldn't be penalizing people for. Uh, the same is true with bacillus, right? That this is used as a common um, microbe that is beneficial to plant growth and probably innocuous to human health. So uh, I think teasing apart that is, is what we're really excited about here at Visual Genomics because it kind of fits with all of our, our, our motives here. We're making PCR tests that help di you know, diagnose these things and we want to find the, the genetics involved in the plants that interact best with them. So it's a lot to unravel there. What about... Um... What about something like CRISPR? How far away are we from having, you know, CRISPR cannabis cultivars? I think some people have done this, at least if you read the patent literature. Now, that's, mm. that's not, the patent literature isn't peer-reviewed. You know, you can try and patent anti-gravity devices, right? But, <laughs> but the methods in those things look like if they could have pulled it off. Like, we have the genome resources now and the references for people to do it. Um, I guess the question is, you know, that's going to get regulated differently because there's different opinions on GMO in different jurisdictions, even, right? Like Europe has a different definition than we have here. Um, I've personally been more excited about like the triploid work because that had immediate benefit. Like one, the triploid work, I mean, you can argue it's a GMO event, but it's more classical. We've done it in a lot of other agricultural plants to, to get sterilized plants. But um, this is something that looks like it's boosting yield. It looks like it's making seedless plants. Uh, and uh, it, it's ready today, right? The, the CRISPR stuff, I, I feel there's an excitement for people to do it because they know they'll get something that's patented, right? You've man-modified it now, you know it's patent eligible, and, uh, and it's, it's somewhat unique for a few people who've done it before. I, I think there's going to be some resistance to it in the, from the consumer front. Uh, I, I think there'll be less of that resistance to the triploids um, because everyone's had seedless watermelon before, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I, I'm a little bit more uh, attracted to some of the, the breeding techniques that don't trigger people's, whether they're irrational or not, they're there. Like there's people who don't want GMO and yep. uh, you've you got to respect that consumer base. And I, I think there'll be a portion of those people who don't want GMO that will accept a classical triploid plant because they've been in the food system for for you know decades now, and uh, they don't see them as as carrying you know foreign DNA per se. Um, now you can also use CRISPR to delete things, and that brings up a whole mm. other topic, right? Uh, so it's not just about adding foreign DNA in or modifying the DNA in a way that's already seen naturally elsewhere. Like you could go in and make some of these modifications to THC synthase, right? And they could emulate things that are in the wild but very rare. And people may have different philosophical opinion over that. Or you could delete a gene where you're not adding in anything new. You're taking something away. I think some people may have less concern over that than like, I'm putting in a THC synthase that also has a GFP on it, right? It makes all the males glow or something, right? I think those things freak people out more when you bring in like, uh, you know, a jellyfish gene as a marker uh, to, to help facilitate your selection of the cells that are actually modified, right? Those things, I think, scare people more than just, all right, I'm going to knock out a gene. That's a problem. I think there's a lot to be done there. We have the tools to do it. Um, I just think the market's going to um, need a lot of educating on the different flavors of modification that go on and whether they're philosophically aligned with them. Mm -hmm. Well, Kevin, thank you for your time. We covered a lot of topics. I think there's a, a wealth of information buried in this episode. So uh, if you have any final thoughts you want to leave people with, go for it. Otherwise, uh, thank you for your time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's um, a, a CAMED conference that we run in Pasadena. It looks like it's going to happen this year. It's been postponed for COVID for too long. Um, so it's happening in Pasadena. Uh, check our website. They'll have dates and information on it. It's, uh, God, I've forgotten which date it is. I think it's in May uh, now. That's we punted it so many times. 
But this talks about a lot. Uh, we get speakers from around the world that discuss all of these topics. Uh, and there's people well more versed in it than I am, particularly on the medical front on how to deploy cannabinoids and even the analytical chemistry front. So um, that, 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 gets a, that, that gets a lot of conversations like this going that are really fruitful. So if you're interested in getting back to conferences, we're having one. And uh, it'll be Southern California this spring. Excellent. Kevin McKernan, thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care, Nick. Thank you.